Love Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumachi Sparks, the open relationship coach at sumachisparks.com. And tonight I'm really excited to have as my guest, Jet Noir. Jet is a fitness coach who specializes in sports psychology. He's also a talented burlesque performer who can be seen in a popular monthly all-male review called Manarchy. Welcome to the show, Jet. Thank you for having me. So glad you're here. So I definitely want to hear more about Manarchy, um, but why don't we start by just talking about open relationships, since that's the theme of the show in general. Um, So I I understand that you practice non-monogamy in your life, ethical non-monogamy, and I wanted to know, when did you first know that open relationships was the best fit for you? Well, first of all, I want to thank you for making the distinction that is ethical non-monogamy because that's really important whenever I talk about non-monogamy. I always want to let people know that because I'm a cisgender heterosexual male, a lot of times people hear non-monogamy and they just assume that, oh, well, you're just single and dating around and just being non-committal. And that's not the case. It's, it is a very, um, it is very important that I approach everything that I do when it comes to dating from a, a an ethical position because I just want to be honest with people. Um, but to answer your question, I first knew – well, I had an inkling that something other than a, you know, monogamy-minded approach to relationships was in the card for me back when I first started being sexually active. I was a teenager, and it was the second time I had sex, and I remember thinking to myself, sex feels amazing, but I wonder how it feels with everyone else. <laughs> and so I just kind of... um because I, I couldn't get that thought out of my head, at that time, I just kind of felt like I was doing something wrong in, in that thought process, but I didn't really have the words around ethical non-monogamy or polyamory. None of those words have been introduced to my life at the age of 15, so I just, I just started having those feelings. Got it. So from a very young age, at age 15 you knew that you didn't want to have, uh, you know, intimate relationships with only one person at a time. Yes, exactly. And and to be clear, um, I didn't, I didn't immediately go and seek out those additional relationships, but at the same time, I, if I started a, a romantic relationship with someone, I would never cut off my friend base, which a lot of people in my past, I've seen a lot of people do that where they have a circle of friends and they're all hanging out and just being social and interacting with each other. But then they enter into a relationship and that person that they're with whom they enter the relationship, that sort of becomes their entire world and they cut off their friends. Mm -hmm. And I never did that. Mm -hmm. So that smacks of something we call relationship anarchy, where we value all of our relationships equally regardless of whether they're sexual or uh, romantic. Yeah, I support that 100%. And do you still treat your relationships that way? Yes, because a friend of – if someone's been my friend for several years 
and then all of a sudden I begin a new romantic relationship, then I'm still going to give the proper love to those very different relationships. I'm not going to, uh, you know, say, oh, well, I'm sorry, friend. I'm trying to build a life with this person, so you're going to take a back seat now. I'm never going to do that. Right. Cool. And so when did you first learn about all these terms like polyamory and ethical non-monogamy? Like when did you first learn that that was a thing and that you actually started practicing that? And how did that come about? I think it was probably 2012, maybe 2013. Uh, A client of mine, a fitness client, she used the word polyamory and she talked about how it was part of her life. And she told me all about, you know, uh, places like mission control. And she told me about the center for sex and culture and how they have these, uh, or they, at the time they had this monthly open relationship discussion groups. And what I love so much about that was I saw that as an opportunity to learn before I, because I was interested when she talked about it, especially the, you know, uh, just what she was saying about it being ethical and everything on the, uh, just above board. And so I decided to start going to some of these open relationship discussion groups and I would just go by myself and sit in on these meetings and listen to all these stories. Uh, none of the stories I can repeat because they're not my stories to tell, but hearing what people had endured in their open relationships helped me to understand that, oh, wow, I hadn't even thought about that potential scenario or what that could be like to maneuver around. And so I just kind of learned from their mistakes and listened to how they handled it and decided, okay, well, maybe I'll handle it the same way or a little different. And and that was a, I felt like that was the best intro for me into the world of ethical non-monogamy and polyamory. Um, and And I also want to make a distinction real quick. For the longest time, I would tell people, well, I'm polyamorous. But as time has gone on and I've gotten a better understanding as to what works best for me, I found myself using the term ethical non-monogamy more. And the only reason for that is because uh, while I, I do believe in giving proper love to you know, di- very different relationships in my life, when it comes to romantic relationships, I'll usually just uh, – focus on one romantic relationships while still having, you know, lovers or just, you know, uh, a friend that I'll have play dates with from time to time and that sort of thing. But I don't necessarily have a desire to have a primary partner and secondary partner and all of that jazz. It's just not, it just doesn't really work for me and what I prefer. So instead of me, Referring to myself as polyamorous, I say I'm, I, I'm an ethical non-monogamist. Because for you, you kind of think of polyamory as someone who has somewhat equivalent romantic relationships where there's, you know, love and follow-through and consistency with each one. Yes, and to be clear, I'm not saying that that is polyamory because I think that what is or is not polyamory or ethical non-monogamy really depends on the people involved in those relationships and what their agreements are. Right. So if, if two people decide this is what ethical non-monogamy looks like for us, then that's great. And I don't think it's really anybody else's place to say, Hey, this is what it really is. And you're doing it wrong. You know, so I I try to avoid ever doing that, But, but yes, to answer your question, I do feel that, um, 
my definition of polyamory is, you know, having, say, a wife and a girlfriend or something like that and just carrying on, um, you know, these sort of equilateral romantic relationships. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to mislead somebody into thinking you're available for that if you already have one deeper um you know, romantic connection, you don't want to be misleading about that, it sounds like. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely be very clear with that when I start dating someone. Um, and, but at the same time, I don't, you know, I, I try to just realize that no matter what I have in my thought process today, that's not to say that all of that can't change by meeting a certain someone tomorrow. You know, because that's just, we all know that's how life works. We always say, oh, well, I'll never do that. And then you meet someone and you're like, oh, I'm totally doing that. <laughs> yes, yeah, so and relationships are very, very fluid. It's kind of this never-ending dance of changeability. And our only hope is to just be able to have really clear, honest communication. Right, right. Um, so you said earlier that you went to a polyamory discussion group, and for people who are listening that are not from the Bay Area, Jet was naming a couple of places in the San Francisco Bay Area, Mission Control and the Center for Sex and, and Culture, and um, you talked about going to a polyamory discussion group, and I like that you kind of did all this research almost before you started practicing ethical non-monogamy, um, whereas so many people just start doing it and they screw up and they make so many mistakes and then they start going to support groups to try to correct the mistakes. So do you think that helped you to maybe um, prevent some bigger mistakes? And um, I'm sure you have, you, you know, still made mistakes. Um, But how, how do you think doing that research in advance maybe mitigated some of those mistakes? Well, I've always been, a huge believer in being proactive about just things in general, any, any, anything that you're going to do, especially if it involves another person, but going to those groups really helped me to be proactive with my communication. <clears throat> so, uh, before going on a first date with someone that I'm very clear about, Hey, you should know these things about me. And, and I say that because a long time ago, before I, you know, learned all of these proactive communication habits, then everything was like, oh, well, maybe I'll tell her that on the third date, and let's see if we like each other first and all of that. Or I was sort of like, let's say I was really attracted to a woman, and I was reluctant to say these things because I was like, oh, man, I don't want to scare her off. And that used to be my mentality, but that's, that's just not cool. I would much rather say, hey, before we go, even if it's just coffee, let's sit down and, say, and just have this real quick five-minute conversation about here are some things that come along with my life ethical non-monogamy being one of them. And, you know, I want you to make an informed decision as to whether you want to have that coffee or lunch or whatever we're going to have and then go from there. Uh, So I think that's the biggest thing that I got from that was just being proactively communicative. Yeah, exactly. And I do that too. And if I'm doing online dating, I have a phone call with people first. And and even if we're both um, non-monogamous, I still talk about, well, how do you do non-monogamy? Everybody does it differently. And uh, do you have a primary partner? Do you have the veto? You know, I don't want to date somebody whose partner is going to veto me six months down the road. So, you know, I, I grill the person about all those things before we even meet now. <laughs> so I think that's a great right. idea. Um, so, uh, 
I lost the question I was going to ask you. Um, oh, so then what? So then tell tell me about some examples of mistakes that you've made and what you learned from them. Um, I think one mistake that I made in one of my first open relationships was um, so I just a, a little bit more of a backstory on me. One of the things that I've found in life is that I'm a huge fan of the book, The Four Agreements, and I find that whenever there is drama in anyone's life, it can always be traced back to one of those agreements not being held. And for me, the common mistake that I've made has, has had to do with assumption. So uh, I will assume that maybe someone I'm dating will know that, oh, well, that, you know, maybe a lover of mine will be in a place where both of us will be. So I remember in an early open relationship that I had, I, you know, there was a party that I threw at my place. And my thought process was I assumed that my partner at the time could figure out that, oh, well, this is a party at his house. Of course, there's going to be, you know, one of his lovers there. And I assume that without communicating it with her first. And so when she got the surprise of, you know, a lover of mine being in the same space, and she wasn't, like, mentally or emotionally prepared for it by me, by me just giving her a heads up, then that turned out to be a big mistake. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. uh, and, and that's a, that's a mistake. I, I can't say that I've uh, – I feel like I've made that mistake actually – if I think about it, I say I maybe made that mistake twice. Yeah, I was just talking to a friend today about um, caring for each other's feelings, and it's it's a delicate balance because you don't want to be codependent, of course, but you also want to be gentle with how things land on your partner. And if you want to stay in relationship with that person, you want to be aware of of how things feel to them. Um, so how do you manage when somebody's feeling jealous or scared and you want to maybe go see someone else? How do you do that dance? That's a tough one because um, the only time I've encountered it, it there, it's, only, it's only come up one time. And um, what I did was I we had not really negotiated or worked out any sort of veto power. However, mm-hmm. I could tell that she was not feeling comfortable around me seeing this lover at that time. So I said, I will do whatever you want. You just let me know. And she still wasn't really comfortable asking because again, we hadn't really worked out that veto power, but I just sort of gave it to her. And I said, you know what? Uh, I'm just not going to see her today. And we're going to spend time together instead. But I want to be very clear that you get one of these. <laughs> and and that, that was, you know, I was like, that, that was the way that I handled it. I said, because you're not, you're not asking for it. I recognize that. But I also recognize that this is probably the, the, you know, the move that I need to make to make sure that, um, that like you said, you're, I'm, I'm also looking out for your feelings because I care about you. Right. So, uh, but so, yeah, I said, uh, I'll make this decision, but you get one of these. Mm-hmm. 
Right. That, I think that's a good good way to handle it because we don't want to caretake the person. If they say they want to be in an open relationship, they have to be willing to grow. And we can't force them to grow faster than they can grow, but as long as we see that they're trying, um, then we can hang in there with them. It's kind of like if you have somebody crashing on your couch and they're in between jobs and they're not looking for a job, they're just laying on the couch all day, you know, reading Facebook instead of searching for a job, you're not going to let them stay on the couch for very long because they're not trying. So I feel it may be like a kind of a cruel analogy, but I just feel like if if I'm doing something and my partner's having feelings about it, um, I'll slow down as long as I can see that they're trying and they're working on it. Definitely. Cool. Okay, so um, let me ask you um, about some of the common misconceptions that we have about uh, non-monogamy. So what would you say if somebody asks you, why isn't one person enough for you? Well, um, one of the common misconceptions I kind of touched on earlier about people's perception around it when when they find out that I'm uh, a heterosexual male. And I, and I point that out because if I were, if I were a bisexual male, then a lot of times people would understand. They're like, oh, well, of course you can't see one person because you're, you know, you're attracted to so many people, right? But, um, but as a heterosexual male and the reputation that heterosexual men have, then they just immediately, the, the assumption is, oh, you're just using that label as an excuse to fuck around. Mm-hmm. And um, and so the 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 other thing that that tends to come up is that question that you mentioned about well, isn't one person enough, or do you think one person will ever be enough? And whenever people ask me that, I sometimes I it depends on like how the conversation got there in the first place. So I'll answer it several different ways. One way that I'll answer it is um, just with logic. And my, my mind says if there are billions of people in the world, then the idea of there only being one match per person just doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and that's just speaking globally. But then the, another way that I may answer that question is I don't think that it's as simple as person being enough or being not enough. Um, I think that what tends to happen is that because in my past, I have dated in a monogamy, you know, or, or a monogamous mindset, right? So, and in doing that, I used to always have this feeling, and I put it on myself, I created this within myself, that whoever I was dating, since she could eventually be my wife or partner for decades, because my parents have been married for over 50 years, so I just kind of assumed that was the path that I was on. And so whenever I dated someone, I always felt like this person if we're going to be together and build something together and get married and all of that other jazz, then she has to be my everything. And because of that, in, in my subconscious, I created all of this undue scrutiny on her and what she did and how she looked and everything. And it was just completely unnecessary because I was in my mind, I was trying to make her everything. And that's just not fair to put on one person. And, Mm -hmm. So it's, it's never that one person is not enough. 
It's just that love is abundant. Love is everywhere. You know, you see it in family members. You see it in friendships. You see it in, like, kids meeting each other for the first time. Uh, You see it when animals trust you and they just met you and they come and get on your lap, things like that. Love is everywhere. So why would we want to limit ourselves to just one person? And I want to be clear with this tone. I am not trying to take any sort of moral high ground like non-monogamy is somehow inherently better. I want to be very clear that non-monogamy or monogamy, all of these are choices, you know, and it's not that one is better than the other or someone is doing anything wrong with their relationship choices. I'm, I just find that this makes sense to me. And, and, and it's just not as simple as one person being enough or not enough. Uh, again, this takes it back to the four agreements and people taking things personally. If someone thinks oh, well, my partner cheated on me or my partner can't be with just me, so somehow I am not enough. Then they're taking it personally when it's really not about them. Right. And um, I wanted to ask you, as an African-American man, do you feel like the judgments you get around when people say, oh, you're only saying you're polyamorous just so you can screw around, do you think that's amplified more or if there are other... Um, racist things that you experience uh, as an African-American non-monogamous person? Two things tend to come up when it comes to my race and uh, practicing ethical non-monogamy. One thing is that uh, people, not not everyone, but sometimes I will uh, get this treatment sort of like I am the mechanic. And I say that in, in the term or in the sense that people just kind of want me to, they look at me like a joyride. And when you look at how black men are portrayed in the media, black men are portrayed as either a villain or a thug or some sort, or they are portrayed as the, the other man that the, uh, the wife will cheat with. Okay. So a woman will be married to someone in this, in this movie or scenario or whatever, but she won't be married to a black man. She'll just cheat with the black man. Mm-hmm. And so what, what, what that, the picture that paints is uh, a lot of times people see me as um, they'll refer to me as overly sexualized or something like that. And I'm like, no, I am sex positive. I am comfortable with my sexuality and I talk about sex I have no problem with that, but none of it is over or extra. They're just taking what they've seen in these portrayals in the media, and they, they're putting it on me. So um, there is, you know, when, when you and, – and what I would encourage any listener to do is to do any sort of just porn searches and look at how black men are portrayed in all of porn. It's always BBC as opposed to the name of the actor. So we're dehumanized in this sense where it's just like, oh, well, let's just focus on penis and size and nothing else. And and it's really dehumanizing. And so then I've gotten, in regards to treatment, what I've recognized is when someone gives me that look like a joyride, and I've had lovers in the past that will say things to me like, I need you to fuck me. And I'll stop them and I'll say, yeah, we're not here for that because if we are going to get together and have an exchange, 
and both receive some pleasure from it, that's great. But if you just need somebody to, again, play the role of mechanic and fix you, then I'm sorry, you should probably call somebody else because I'm not going to be, I'm not, I'm not going to be a dildo for you. And mm-hmm. so that's one, that's one thing that I encounter. And then another thing that I encounter is, um, again, non-monogamy or monogamy, their choices. And I don't criticize anyone for their choices, but when I recognize a pattern, a pattern is a pattern. So what I have experienced has been women who identify as polyamorous or non-monogamous and we are dating or we are lovers or what have you. But when it comes time for them to choose partnership, they choose partnership with someone else. They won't even bring it up to me that they're interested in seeking partnership. And they'll go on and on about, oh, you're such a great person. You're so amazing. You're such a great human being. But then they'll seek partnership with elsewhere with someone else. And, and, and I find that interesting because I always want to question, if you talk about how great I am, then why didn't you even bring up the idea of being a partner with me? Uh-huh. And, and then another thing that, will, that I'll encounter is, um, and this, this kind of has to do with my, the fact that I live part of my life on stage. I always ask any lover of mine to never, ever introduce me to someone else through a picture. And here's what I mean by that. Let's, let's say that a lover of mine takes on a new lover, and then they're having a conversation about people that are in her life. And then she says, oh, here's someone that I'm seeing. And then she shows that person like my Facebook profile or Instagram or something like that. And that's how that person, quote, unquote, meets me for the first time is through seeing these pictures. And the reason I ask for no one to ever do that is because that's not how you meet someone. That's not who I am. That's just, those are just pictures on the Internet. You know, let, let us meet in person. Let us have a drink and, and make eye contact and meet that way. Because what ends up happening is that person every time will end up being intimidated by me and use their veto power and say, no, you can't see him anymore unless just you and I be together. Mm-hmm. And and that's yeah. that's it's frustrating, it's hurtful, and it's um and it's also kind of funny because it's like I explain to them I'm like this is exactly why I told you not to introduce me in that way. You don't introduce someone by a picture. You put them in front of the other. You know. Right. I could see them getting a little intimidated if they saw one of your performance pictures. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so, and, uh, and I'm not an intimidating person. Yeah. Yeah, that's your stage persona. So if you're just joining us now, you're listening to Leading Edge Love Radio, and this is your host, Sumati Sparks, the open relationship coach at sumatisparks.com. And we're speaking with Jet Noir. Jet's a fitness coach who specializes in sports psychology, and he's also a burlesque performer. And I'd like to ask you a little bit more about that since we kind of went down that road of your performance um, persona. (laughs) Um, You were talking about one of the issues, you didn't use the word, but I was hearing it as um, kind of being fetishized by women um, as a a black male. And since you're part of an all-male review... Um, and just recently you had an all-black male review. Um, 
how does that jive with you having experience being fetishized? Is that kind of your way to like claim it as your own? Can you talk about that? Well, uh, you were at the show on Friday, and I don't know if you remember how I touched on that when I was on the mic. Um, because, you know, I, for those listening, uh, I was the MC of the show regretfully, as well. I miss, regretfully, I missed that show. I, I'm very sad to have missed it. I've seen many of the past shows, but I didn't go to the last one. <laughs> no worries. Well, what what I said on the mic was I talked about how we are giving license to the audience members to fetishize us when we are on stage. And I reiterated that key point, when we are on stage. And I reminded the audience, I said, when we are walking through the audience, maybe we're trying to get to the restroom, get to the bar, or we just happen to go, want to go talk to our friend or whatever. Do not touch us. Do not you know, put your hands on a butt or anything like that because consent culture is still important even if it's someone that you have seen on stage. Just because we got on stage and stripped for you doesn't mean that we are consenting to anything other than your, you know, your paper tributes or your screams and things like that, sure, but don't touch us. And so, um, and so that was something that I touched on then or on the mic, and what I found is that my entire life, I have listened to, I've listened to women complain about the way that men treat them by crossing their boundaries and, you know, groping and things like that. And because I've listened to those stories, uh, it's made me acutely aware of, you know, of how I am when I'm even around a woman. It's like, which, which direction am I looking? You know, am I, if I'm looking in a direction that, that may seem as if I'm looking at her body part, then I should probably turn around, you know, just because I don't want to, you know, her, I, I have no idea like what her perception is doing at the moment. And if she genuinely feels like, Oh, that man is staring at my fill in the blank, then I don't want to, I don't want to fuel that. And I'm just like, and, because I work in a gym. Okay. Everyone around me is, is, is in a very vulnerable state because they're working out. Uh, they're often wearing tight clothes. So I just I don't want anyone to feel uncomfortable around me or unsafe around me. So I just make sure that I, I don't do that. And so um, going back to your question about being fetishized and, 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 and how I feel about that, I think that fetishizing anyone uh, should be done with consent. So – if if someone is dating someone and they know that they're dating them just because uh, the one person happens to be the other person's fetish, then I think that's great as long as they've talked about that, they're aware of it, and everyone's on the same page. But if one person is secretly fetishizing and only with the person because of, you know, a certain appearance or maybe they're black or maybe they're Asian or something like that, then I think that that's – I think it's shitty. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's true. I remember um, on a first date with somebody I met online, he was already asking me if he could massage my feet. And I was like, uh, maybe like, you know, three or four dates down the road if we're sitting there watching a movie and I put my feet on your lap and you want to start massaging them, but just to specifically ask me to go home and massage my feet, that feels very fetishy and it kind of creeped me out because there was no consent. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Now, now, point. if you if, yeah. if you look at that a different way, and you let's say you're on, say let's say you're online and you're exchanging a few messages, 
and then it's made extremely clear that that's the reason he's on that site, or I'm sorry, they are on that site, and that is uh, exactly why the two of you are going to get together. Then there's consent. You're both on the same page. You get together, and you wear some open-toed shoes. Everyone's happy, right? But you get that consent first. Uh Yeah. And, yeah, I'm glad you talked about that at the show because I do recall being at one of the Manarchy shows and, and seeing a performer walk through the audience and feeling myself such a role reversal of the exact things that I've uh, been harassed, feeling harassed by men in the past, you know, groping me or making comments at me, uh, glaring at me, whatever. Um, I found myself with kind of an impulse to do that. Of course, I, I held myself back and I didn't do anything, but I just noticed the impulse to reach out and touch the performer or holler at them and tell them their sexy cat call. You know, so it gave me a lot of empathy for how men feel when I saw this very sexy man who had just stripped on the stage walk past me. So I think it's a really good exercise for women to experience that um, and have some empathy for what men often go through just in their day-to-day life. Yeah, and and so recently, uh, not recently, I guess it was about a year ago, uh, I used to have a one-man show, and it was at the Mitchell Brothers O'Farrell Theater. And Mm -hmm. what was interesting about that show was in that particular space, we were allowed to go fully nude. And when you're allowed to go fully nude, that's that's a big game changer when it comes to how you perform and how the audience sees you. And in this one-man show, it was just me in a room that was probably the size of a living room that had couches all around the side of it. And, um, and I was fully aware that, okay, when I have this room full of women and I'm, I'm the only person dancing for them, I'm fully aware that this is a time where not only am I going to be fetishized, but there is no stage. I am in their face. I am on their lap. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, there, there was, there, there was one time that I remember specifically where a woman didn't come out and say this, but what she did say was she said, thank you because she grew up in a house where anything relating to sex was sort of frowned upon. You know, they could never really talk about it or nudity was frowned upon, that sort of thing. So when she said thank you, it wasn't like she was thanking me for my dancing. It was more like just the freedom for her, because for that particular show, she was the only person in the room. For that, just the freedom for her to just, you know, um, just ogle me and just objectify a man without feeling any sort of pressure to, like, you know, because if you're in a bar and it's just a random guy sitting next to you and you do that, then it's very different because then it's like, oh, well, I've showed this person that I'm interested and now maybe I have to deal with that later. But she didn't have to deal with mm-hmm. that with me because I wasn't hitting on her. Mm-hmm. So so she, so I, I felt this genuine sigh of relief from her. Right. That's a good point. Yeah. So how has it affected your relationships being a burlesque performer? That's a tough question to answer, and the reason I say that is because I don't know how many there, – there, there's this interesting thing that happens when you're on stage or when you live part of your life on stage is that people make it up in their head reasons to be intimidated by you when 
there's really no reason to be intimidated by anybody on stage. And the reason I say that is because all of us are just human beings that go home and talk to our cats at the end of the day, you know, or, <laughs> or our dog or whoever. And it's just, so some of the things that we talk about backstage are ridiculous. I mean, we're, we're telling dad jokes and we're talking about a good way to stretch and things like that. We're just, we're really just normal people. So when people get intimidated by someone on stage, then what it creates is um, they won't even approach. They won't even say hi sometimes because they're convinced that, oh, well, this person is this kind of way because they see you on stage and they don't really know anything else. So that's why it's a hard question for me to answer. I can't rightfully say that it's had a positive or a negative or any kind of effect on my relationships, relationships because who knows how many people have not even talked to me because I've been on stage, you right. know? And, and then also um, with the relationships that I've been in, while I've been a stage performer, um, I never, I never recall hearing anything negative like, oh, well, because you perform dot, 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 right? I, I, don't, I don't really recall having any of those conversations. Um, okay. The only time there's been any sort of conflict or overlap has been when I've had a partner and I didn't feel like she supported what I did. Like, hey, this is my first time performing this type of you know, act or something like that. I would love it if you're in the audience. Oh, no, I'm going to stay home and go to bed. You know, and now that has happened in the past, and that didn't feel really good, but we didn't end up working out anyway. So that's that was kind of a yellow flag leading to that end. Okay. Um, right. You know, but other, other than that, I can't say that it has had a positive or a negative effect on relationships. Mm-hmm. So you haven't had any partners that felt jealous of all the attention that you were getting or anything like that? Not any partners. I do recall hearing at least, I don't know, over the years, like three or four people say, oh, I could never date you because, uh, and they sort of pointed to burlesque, and their justification was like, oh, well, you're always backstage with all of these attractive women. And, <laughs> and I always found that funny because I'm like, again, we're all of us are a bunch of squares. You know, backstage is like these attractive women that I'm backstage with, they're moms and they uh and or or they like have no desire to date period or they have no desire to date me or whatever you know and and they're just and we're just platonic friends backstage now sure have i have i you know dated some people that i've performed with sure i have but it's not like we're it's not like there's this orgy happening backstage that some people may imagine Right, you're performing, so you're getting your head right. on straight for the show. <laughs> right. right, yeah, we're yeah. we're we're in a perfect world. Everyone backstage is completely professional and 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 just focused on their number. Mhm. Right. Well, that's pretty good that you haven't had a lot of jealousy in your relationships around it. That's great. Um, so, what what are some of the best practices you've found when it comes to communicating? Um, what your needs are and um, just all the issues that come up in open relationship. What are some of your best tips for communication? Well, it goes back to what I was saying about being proactive. And um, now I want to be clear when I say being proactive, I, I think that it's very easy for people to try to talk about a problem before it's a problem. And then it turns into these hypothetical arguments where it's like, Hey, 
what would you do if this happened? And then because the person doesn't like the other person's answer, then it turns into an argument about something that hasn't actually happened yet. So that can be dangerous. And I always recommend that people never have hypothetical arguments, but at the same time, you, you should, you know, say, Hey, let's prepare for something that is a real possibility. Like I, you know, and this, this is fictitious. This has never happened to me, but let's say, Hey, I have this lover who I know has a tendency to sort of pop up at my house unannounced. And while I've talked to her about it in the past, it doesn't really doesn't really bother me when she does it, but it may bother you. So I wanted to give you a heads up. And just having that sort of proactive conversation about something that is realistic, then I think that's definitely a, be- a best practice. And the other thing is, um, much like the first time you have sex with someone, you sit down and you have a conversation about boundaries and likes and dislikes so that you can, you know, uh, really have a great experience together. I think the same thing applies to relationships where you sit down and say, Hey, what are some deal breakers for you? And what are some things that, um, that you really like to experience? You know, uh, if, if, if this is something that you or your partner are into, maybe you talk about what your love languages are, that doesn't really resonate with everyone, but if it does, then that's a good thing to understand, you know, Oh, I, your love language is active service. All right, great. Then I'll know that when you're, you know, doing something for me as opposed to saying the words I want you to hear, then you're showing me in your way. And then I'll respect that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's, I was just talking to a client today about having that conversation with a new man. She's dating like, Hey, have you heard about the love languages? Would you like to talk about what each of our love languages are and to bring that up before you're triggered so that you're not in a place where you're going, you never give me my love language <laughs> you know right. you want to talk about right. it before you're triggered like be proactive like you said so what are some of your deal breakers that you've found in, in your experience well I'm a um, I've always been raised to just pay attention to detail and so a deal breaker for me is tell me something happened and be honest about it before I figure out what happened. Mm-hmm. So I, a partner came over and she had a certain type of bruise and I asked her what happened. And the answer she gave me didn't match the type of bruise it was. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay. And I just let it go because I wasn't going to turn it into something. I was like, this is what she's comfortable telling me. I'll let it go. And then some time went on, and she told me the truth. And I told her, I was like, don't ever, don't don't lie to me. You know, it's, it's just really just as simple as that. Just, I saw it. I knew what it was. I didn't, I wasn't bothered by it. I was bothered that you told me it wasn't that. So lying is definitely a deal breaker. Um, mm-hmm. And... Other deal breakers, I think, just really have to do with um, just a lack of consideration. You know, if if we've talked about, hey, you know, when you do this, it bothers me or upsets me in some way, and then you do it anyway, then that's 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 a pretty easy deal breaker. It's like I know that we've talked about this, so right. So, um, what are what are three things that you would tell someone who was considering exploring ethical non-monogamy for their first time? What are three pieces of advice you would give? 
number one, if it doesn't fit, don't force it. You know, if you feel like you want to get into this pool and and it just and and it, it doesn't feel like you're genuinely pulled towards it. Going back to what I was saying about when I first got introduced to it and I started going to all those discussion groups, I was I was a student. You know, I was trying to learn it, and, and the more I learned about it, I was like, this is great, right? And I think that people should have that mentality when they go into it, just excited about it, like, yes, this is great, this is what I want to do. But if they don't have that enthusiastic yes, then maybe they should reconsider and say, okay, well, maybe I need to define what it's going to mean for me as opposed to just jumping in head on and just, uh, you know, just doing it the way others do it, but instead defining what it means for me. Uh, the second bit of advice that I would give is um, communication, you know, and, and it's around all things. The Something that I found interesting is that women I've dated have been completely blown away at my willingness and desire to talk about what's going on between us emotionally. And they've been blown away. And, um, and I find their surprise very telling as to what's common out in the world of dating. You know, it's, it's telling me that other men don't want to talk very much about this sort of thing. And that's, that's how, as a man, that's how we're raised. It's like, we don't talk about emotions. You don't express emotions because that's a sign of weakness. Shut all of that down. Shove it deep down inside and just act like it's not there. And I've never agreed with that. My mom always taught us that when it comes to – and this is the way she said it. She said when it comes to farting and crying, there's more room out than in. <laughs> and so – and that's that's my mentality when it comes to communicating and, and emotions and things like that. Um, and the the other thing – would be just recognize, like have a real keen eye. This is the third piece of advice. Have a real keen eye for anyone that is is uh, using any sort of manipulative tactics. So if you find that your, let's say your partner is always coming up with some reason to stop you from going on a date with you, with a specific lover, like, oh, I need you to give me a ride somewhere right now. Or, oh, I, you know, my car ran out of gas. Or just always something. Then you just kind of got to pay attention to those patterns and recognize, oh, you know what? This person's manipulating, and this is probably them being jealous in some way, but just trying to sabotage. And, and that has to be recognized and discussed right away. Um, Oh, and I know that you only asked for three, but the fourth one, this is something that I'm a huge fan of in any and all relationships, no matter how you identify. I call it the rule of double time. No matter how much time you have been with someone, whether we're talking about one date or one year, at some point, something inside of you, when you think about the amount of time you have been together, you stop and you think about, spending double that amount of time. So one date and you think, oh, well, what do I do a second date with this person? And when you think about that, you got to really listen to how your body responds. Because if your body responds with this excited yes, like, yes, I would love another date with this person, then you go on the, the second date, right? It's the same thing okay. whether it's been a year. If you've been together for a year and the thought of spending another year makes you feel excited, then you should definitely go forward. However, if you've been together for any amount of time, 
And just the thought of doubling that amount of time makes you feel dread, significant Uh dread, like you are saddened at the thought of it. You should probably leave. Uh And and I know that I'm sure there are plenty of relationship experts, and even you may disagree with that, but I have found that that's something that really needs to be listened to because, I mean, of course you should stop and examine why do I feel this dread, you should certainly talk it out with your partner and figure out where that's coming from. And you may be able to solve, solve it right then and there, but you got to listen to that still. And it's like, Oh, well let's check in a little bit more when a little bit more time has passed and say, am I excited about spending the um, double amount of time with you? Yeah. Yeah. That's a good rule. And I think it's common for people to get really attached in a relationship and be afraid to be alone um, afraid of getting their abandonment issues triggered or whatever, and they just stay in their relationship because it's familiar, even though they're dreading <laughs> the next date or the next month or year with that person. So I think that's a great rule to follow. Yeah. And and I think we need to get a lot of support if we find ourselves in a relationship that we dread or that we're shutting shutting our partner out. Like when our partner talks, we're just shutting them out because we can't stand what they have to say or the tone of their voice or something. Um, we have to ask ourselves, why are we still in that relationship? And if we can't get out of it, then to reach out and get support um, because it's not always easy to leave a relationship. Our core wounds get triggered. And um, just to get a lot of support, whether it's therapy, friends, a, a discussion group like you were talking about, there's lots of support out there if you ask for it. So a really good point. Um, I wanted to talk about something else that you brought up earlier when you said that you don't um, think that non-monogamy is superior to monogamy um, and that everyone has a choice. Um, It got me thinking about this concept of, I think uh, non-monogamy is a unique issue in that some people can practice it by choice. In fact, I interviewed two young women over the past year who both recommend to their young women clients that they try, if they're single, um, that they try a period of dating um, in a polyamorous kind of way because it can be so growthful. (laughs) Um, And so even if they don't see themselves as being polyamorous for their whole life, maybe when they're in their 20s, go for a year or two and, you know, maybe date a couple, maybe um, maybe be poly solo or just try try it because it can create so much personal growth. So for some people, it can be a really clear, solid choice that they make. But for other people, it feels like that's just who they are and they can't change it even if they tried. And I feel like I'm one of those people I failed at monogamy for years and years and years, meaning that I always cheated. I just couldn't do it. And when I realized that there was something called ethical non-monogamy or polyamory where I could actually be honest about wanting to date other people, my whole life changed, and I felt like finally there's this subculture that accepts who I am. So it's not like – I think a lot of the reason why gay people and trans people have be, are starting to become more accepted – is because there's a lot of science that shows that it's not a choice for them. Um, But for polyamorous people, sometimes it is a choice and sometimes it isn't. So it makes it a little harder to get societal acceptance because of that. Do you know what I mean? I I do. And and when I talk about it being a choice, I think um, 
I'm in the same boat about how, you know, yeah, I definitely, you know, um, I've cheated in the past. And the reason I choose ethical non-monogamy, I like to tell people that I would much rather be proactively honest with five women than ever cheat on one. Mm-hmm. And so I, I definitely see what you mean when it just feels innate and natural. But if, and this is just for the sake of argument, if I were to meet someone and recognize that she's not quite comfortable with non-monogamy and just for the sake of patience and she and I building a foundation and sort of ushering her in, if I chose monogamy for a short period of time, just for the sake of, you know, sort of ushering her into that world, then I, I feel like I could make that choice for that short period of time. But again, it goes back to, we have to be, honest with ourselves, like you were saying, just be honest with yourself and just true to who you are because then your life definitely feels kind of like you, I, I got the vibe that your life felt a sense of freedom. And, and I agree with that. I definitely feel that sense of freedom in living as a non-monogamous. Uh, but I, but I, but when people go from being polyamorous to monogamous, what I don't want, and this is, sort of a reminder to myself and a reminder to listeners as well. What I don't want is I don't want people to say, Oh, well that person's indecisive or wishy-washy or anything like that. They're just making a choice. Mm-hmm. Well, that's true. I have known people that have been poly for most of their adult life. And then they chose to give that up to be with one particular person who was monogamous and wasn't having any of it. And they've, they can still choose to do that without cheating not easy but (laughs) it's possible not easy (laughs) so yeah it's a very fluid lifestyle and it's not really like anything else um and so i think it's a real challenge for conservative people to understand and when i see all the comments on social media after an article is posted in a mainstream place like the new york times or something you'll see all these comments about well, they're married. Like to them, the de- whole definition of marriage is monogamy. Like it's the same word for them. So their their brain just right. can't even expand enough to understand it. <laughs> yeah, and and I'm glad you mentioned that because there was a social media, um, or this this person on Twitter said something about something that he had done in his past where he was. I don't remember what the hashtag was or why he was telling this, but he said something about how during sex with one woman, she asked if he was going to go and see some other woman later on that night. And he said, yes. And so everybody, every comment below that people were ridiculing him like, Oh my God, how could you do that? And my thought process was she asked him a question and he gave an honest answer. I really don't see what, what he's done wrong here. But again, that's just a different right. perception. And, uh, and one of the comments, I'll never forget this, this woman said, you didn't even like her enough to lie to her. Mm. Mm. And I was like, wow, is that, is that what people are thinking? Like means, because if that's, <laughs> right. if that's how you define liking me, then no, don't, don't like me. <laughs> yeah, I know. I agree. She shouldn't have asked the question if she didn't want an honest answer. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah, and you know what? That that goes back to uh what you were saying earlier about the um the the bit of advice that I would give. 
I would give that advice to anyone, whether they're uh, in an open relationship or not. Don't ever ask a question if you're not ready for any possible answer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and like I said, our only hope is clear, honest communication. Otherwise, we might as well just give it all up and go live in the woods by ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Jet, it's been really delightful speaking with you about all these topics. I really appreciate your transparency and sharing your wisdom of your experience with us. Um, Before we run out of time, I want to give you a chance to tell our listeners how they can reach you if they'd like to learn more about what you offer. And um, also, I believe you have a a gift for our listeners. Take it away. I I do have a gift for listeners. So first of all, people can reach me on my website. It's Jet Noir Muse. It's J-E-T. N-O-I-R-M-U-S-E dot com. And that is a great way to get in touch with me because there is a a contact me link. And the gift that I have for listeners is going back to what you mentioned about, you know, my specialty is uh, sports psychology. So with any sort of habit that anyone wants to change or anything about your life that you want to change, I always say your mind has to change first. If you want to change something about your body, mind has to change first. And so – what I'm offering is a free 30-minute consultation, and it can happen over the phone or over Skype, depending. so people can do this from anywhere. And I'll basically give the individual uh, anything or, or some, some, some tips, tricks, helpful things that will drive them towards the habit change that they seek. Fabulous. Awesome. And can people also reach you there if they'd like to book you to perform? They can, yes. They can, um, they can reach me there when it comes to booking me for a performance or for fitness or for uh, the consultation, all through the website, Jet Noir Muse, J-E-T-N-O-I-R-M-U-S-E.com. Excellent. Okay, well, thank you so much for being on the show, Jet, and we will see you hopefully at the next show. <laughs> awesome. Sounds good. Thanks so much. Okay, have a good night. Okay, so that was a great interview with Jet. And next week I'll be chatting with the lovely and talented Triambica Mavive. So a lot of you may have heard of Triambica. She is a very successful sexuality coach for for soulful men. The sexuality coach for the soulful man. Um, She's a tantra teacher. She's an international speaker. She's a teacher uh, in the ISTA organization. And I'm really looking forward to speaking with her. We've been colleagues and friends for a few years now. So she will be with us next week, and I hope you'll all join us at the same time, 6 p.m. Pacific time. Have a good evening. <laughs>